If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The Starter Edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we are in our respective hiding places. You know, it's it's funny. I, I'm listening to NPR, you know, and all the of course. NPR shows that I like that are usually quiz shows that have an audience and stuff. They've all moved to their home offices. We yeah. didn't have to do that change because no. we already record from our homes. Yeah. That, that, and it's funny to see the YouTubers thriving, too. Yeah, for the same sort of reason. Like this is the this is their world. They were becoming more like the other shows, and now they're sort of reverting back as well. Yeah, it's fun. Well, you know, it's not fun, but um, it is what it is, and it we're is what it is. we're doing fine. You know, I was planning this year was the year that Run As Radio's first show in in April fell on April first. Yeah, and I had been playing with a April first April Fool's Day show for months. I had, I'm not going to reveal it because one day I'll do it, but I, yeah. I had a great idea. It was a plan. And then it just didn't seem like a time to be funny. Right. And well, you- uh, I, I ended up doing a solo show. Like I did that at the beginning of the year on January yeah. uh, where I sort of said, what, well, you know, what is it, what are we going to think about as IT pros in the next This was in years? New York, right? Yeah. Well, that, 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 that was January 1st. And it was just, I was trying to figure out how to talk about this new decade in IT Mm. And so ended up doing this solo show, which is here's all my thinking right now, which people seem to like. And then I was going to have fun in April. And so yeah. then instead, I ended up just shooting separately uh, a show on, you know, here's all the information I've gathered around what IT pros are doing. Because uh, anybody who's responsible for a company right now in their operations mm. is absolutely up to their eyeballs and alligators. Yeah. Right? Trying to get everybody working from home, trying to keep systems stable and reliable, mm. uh, having enough bandwidth. Like there's a lot uh, to deal with. Dealing with Zoom bombers. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and well, you know what? The security's there. Just turn it on. Yeah, it, it is uh, now. Yeah. Well, it was it was always there. It just wasn't on by default. Right. The um, But it, in the consequence of that has been, starting in May, I'm doing a second run as a week, specifically on subjects around the pandemic. So deep dives on expanding your VPN architecture, dealing with governance from, for work from home. Like, that's how much demand there's been. Like, I, I know most people are... are sort of stuck at home or working less, but yeah. not for me. Like they, the podcasts are, are crazy busy and the demand for shows to help folks deal with this technologically. It's uh, it's huge. Yes, it is. Well, uh, let's roll the crazy music for a better know framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Well, Damien Edwards has this great, project out on github and i think i might have spoken about it before but i'll i'll revisit it it's tag helper pack hmm so this is a set of useful and possibly opinionated t- tag helpers for asp.net core so uh so these are essentially data annotation tag helpers that you can use with any element 
that do things, right? So you can have, uh, you can specify data. Mm-hmm. There's markdown tags. There's form tags, script inlining tags, off Z tags. Um, there's if tags so that you could say something like in a div, uh, ASP if equals and then date time UTC. Now dot minute mod two equals zero. Then that div only renders during even minutes. That's <laughs> just oh. one of his demos. <laughs> That's weird. Okay. <laughs> but, but essentially it's a really good way to just put a little declarative oomph into uh, HTML tags. Oh, that's really interesting. And it's certainly in HTML5, something they're asking for, although it varies from browser to browser how those things are implemented, too. Yeah, well, leave it to Damien Edwards. To come up with a good abstraction. He's a brilliant guy. I I have been known to to be hanging out on a Zoom session now and again with a certain group of whiskey drinkers, <laughs> uh, uh, including Mr. Edwards. Cool. And, and uh, we, ha- we, we toast to various whiskeys. I'm, we're all making dents in our collections that we're not going to be able to replace anytime soon. You, you showed me a YouTube video once of a guy whose YouTube gig was just sitting in front of the camera and speaking names of whiskeys because people mispronounce them mispronouncing so them, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, there is that Ron Swan. There's that Ron Swanson <laughs> clip where he never says a thing. He sits by a fire and he sips yeah. Lagavulin for like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but if I I'm, ever catch you nose, nose, nose in it like this, I'll kill you. <laughs> oh, we're going to have to get back to Scotland someday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Scottnet rocks shall live again. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's what I got, Richard. Who's talking to us? That's awesome, dude. Grabbed a comment off of show 1542, the one we did with one Mark Seaman back in 2018. Wow, 2018, two years yeah. ago. Uh, and the title I loved, Constraints Liberate. It was such a great show. Changed my life. And yeah. I'm not kidding. Yeah, well, he's and and the comments reflect that, too. Yeah, I, can't, I don't disagree with you that lots of people reacted the same way. And this is from Rob Scheifer, long-term listener and, and good guy all around. He said, this was a great episode. I'm seeing constraints everywhere now. Yeah. All the coding and development process best practices I've learned over the past 15 years have actually been constraints of one type or another. I agree with Mark that even .NET or any framework for that matter constrains the capabilities of the developer, usually for the good. Most frameworks make it easier for developers, but they are also an abstraction, which often hides and prevents lower level access, thus constraining what's available and the harm it might cause. Constraint-driven development has a nice ring to it. It's now part of my go-forward arsenal, and thanks to Mark and .NET Rocks. Yep. So, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. it's what was great about that show is just a realization. These have always been here. You've just been ignoring them or fighting against them, and they're there to help you. And it just didn't, you know, their constraints are always seen as limiting. Yeah. And th- this was just a, it's turning it around. I also think it's a cultural thing, too, right? I mean, specifically in the West, a sort of anti authoritarian don't hold me down, don't tread on me kind of mindset thing. Right. It's like, no, we're really trying to make your life easier. But it's get, give you a path of success to work in. Also, as the writer said there, the commenter, you you discover these constraints in everyday life. Like, yeah. you know, playing guitar. What do you mean I can't play three octaves stretch? What do you mean <laughs> I can't do that? Oh, yeah, that just means you have to cluster your chords a, a little tighter. Yeah. Okay. Well, they sound a lot different, don't they? 
Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Than on a piano, for example. Sure. It's part of what makes a guitar sound a guitar sound. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. That's good thinking. So, Rob, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. Yes. Hey, you know, and speaking of Music to Code By, uh, I have an audio for video license available now. It's, oh. it's a one-time fee, so you can use it as background music for live streams or in your own videos, and you get the whole entire collection. Nice. So that's on uh, store.pwop.com. You can just go out and get that. And I noticed that because somebody just bought one of those today. Oh, great. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you can follow us on Twitter, please. Uh, he's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Please send us a tweet. But remember, you only have so many characters. <laughs> Be succinct. You, Talk about constraints liberate, right? I mean... Yeah, yeah, totally. Tweets. I, you're up to 20 tracks? Holy man. Yeah, well, no, I mean, tweets have defined a writing style. Yeah. And, and because of the constraints of the number of characters. and But they raised it. Like, isn't that an interesting statement? Yeah, it about, is. You know, that go from, uh, what was it, 140 to, to 240? 144, yeah. Yeah. Because this was too constraining? I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, I'm sure Mark has a lot to say about this because he's And the, the inspiration for Music to Code By. Yeah, too. absolutely. He's the reason that we're here today and the reason for these comments and everything we're talking about. So, Mark Seaman helps programmers make code easier to maintain. His professional interests include functional programming, object-oriented development, software architecture, uh, as well as software development in general. Apart from writing a book about dependency injection, he's also created several plural site courses, videos for clean coders, and has written numerous articles and blog posts about programming. He's an independent consultant, author, and conference speaker, and living in Copenhagen, Denmark. Welcome back, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know how we go two years. Yeah, so I'm very much living in Copenhagen at the moment. That's I'm not really doing the international conference speaking at the moment. Yeah, no, nobody is. There is no international yeah. conferences. That's that's it. Uh, it yeah, uh, yeah. We the winding down of the spring event was not a small problem. Like that was very challenging. Wow. I hope we get to do our December show. Mm. Yeah, here we are. Here I, we are. I'm enjoying my home for better or worse. Oh, you are. You are. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm sort of thinking, you know, I'm, I'm usually just working from home anyway. So you'd think it, it wouldn't be a, a, a big difference. But I have my kids at home because oh, right. they're not at school. And even though they're quite Oh, they're seventeen and thirteen. Yeah, they're still, you know, there's actually always someone in the in the house now, and and I'm sort of like, you know, when all of this is over, I need to go to a silent retreat somewhere because mm. it's just way too much social interactivity for for my, you know, yeah, pleasure, if you will, for for an extended uh, period of time. Even though I love my family, <laughs> so yeah. um, yeah, yeah. But how can I miss you if you won't go away? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a great song by Dan Hicks and his hot licks, by the way. Oh, yeah. It's so funny. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, I saw a meme on Facebook that said, uh, uh, you know, hey, married people on Facebook, I don't see any blessed or he's the love of my life messages in the last three weeks, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So we love our families, but, you know. 
you with them we anybody just, we also for don't so need long to say it to them on, the, on social media because they're just right there so yeah, we can yeah. always just tell them no I, I think we're we're doing pretty good i've been doing lots of maintenance around the house mm. and we share the cooking responsibilities like yeah we've been getting along pretty good it, i'm not saying anything's easy nothing's easy right now but right. it's not it's not a stress point so mark what's on your mind these days what are you thinking about Oh, I'm I'm just thinking about software development in general, as as the bio says there. Um, so lots of things, uh, you know, uh, you know, following up on on the discussion on, on that you just had about Twitter there. I think um, I think one of the um, one of the things you need to figure out with constraints is that it's not that all constraints liberate. You sort of have to to find the constraints that are beneficial to you and the ones that are in the way. Um, so I'm actually pretty happy with the the character limit you know, extension that Twitter made because the, mm -hmm. the 140 character uh, limit was a little bit too narrow, if you will. And but I find the new one actually works out pretty well for me. You know, I still I still need to trim things down and say things succinctly, but it's not that I you know you don't need those long trains of of tweets to say anything at all. You know, yeah. you can actually get a point across mm -hmm. uh, in in one tweet. Uh, so I think you know one of the one of the follow-up, you know, um, experiences from from that previous discussion was that you have to figure out which constraints are actually the beneficial ones, and you have to sort of, you know, try them out and and tweak them until they're they're just right. Um, so, but I was thinking as you as you were you were talking about this that it's basically you know in software development. Uh, you could say, well, a constraint is basically something that prevents you from shooting yourself in the foot. So, you know, mm. a, a, you know, something that, you know, aims the gun away from your foot is a constraint, but that's fairly beneficial, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, these are very positive constraints one way or the other. But I, oh, I, yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember Guthrie using this line, but lots of uses this line. We're trying to get you to fall into the pit of success. And mm -hmm. So the fact that there's sort of guardrails that lead you towards that pit of success, yeah. you could call them constraints as you want, but mm -hmm. they're pretty positive. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think one of the uh, examples that you gave during that talk, Mark, was the mm -hmm. um, functional programming in languages like F sharp, where everything is immutable. So you never have the potential to get null reference exceptions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So those are actually two different things, but you know, you have both of those benefits in, in F sharp, for example, but they're actually, you know, they, they sort of originate from two different uh, things, but you know, the, the absence of null is a very liberating constraint because yeah. that means you don't have to do a lot of defensive programming. Right. And, and just to make sure that everyone still is on board with this, it's not that you can't model the absence of, of a value, for example, that people will typically use null for in other languages. You can right. still do that, but it's just in a more disciplined way. Sure. Um, so that the types of the system will help you to figure out, you know, did you actually check for that or not? So there's just a lot of less defensive coding that you need to do in, in a language like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so the absence of, of, of you know, um, null references is really liberating. It just means, because in the end, all that stuff is largely plumbing code, right? You you don't want to have to write around that. You want to... Oh, yeah, it's a lot of noise that, you know, if you if you read code that actually, you know, proper defensive coding can be quite necessary, um, but it introduces a, an, you know, an extra level of complexity that's, you know, sort of almost drowns the real purpose of the code in, in all the all the noise that surrounds it so right. you can't really see what's going on 
Although one would argue that's a, a failure of the language itself. Like, mm. couldn't we build better constructs to just avoid that? Isn't that what C-sharp just did? Well, C-sharp is a pretty good uh, move in, in the right direction. But but we also have to think about, you know, now now that language is like 25 years old. Yeah. Ah, okay. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little Not bit. Not by a lot, though, friend. No, I, no, I, but, I, but, I, but, as yeah, the guy still 20. working on the freaking book, <laughs> you know, I've got, I've got, uh, God, I should finish that thing. Um, yeah, right. I got Andrew's notes from 99, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. He, when he was asked to develop a language, like they, and there's a lot of that original vision around generics, around, uh, around dealing with nulls, around not making the mistakes that Java made. Yeah. But then why did they make it anyway? Yeah. Well, it's funny, huh? <laughs> Some of them. I suppose I'll have to read the book to figure that out. Yeah. Well, it was a, mm. an interesting set of battles. Now I got to just finished writing. Making too many podcasts right now. It's hard to, to get long stretches of writing. I'm done. looking forward to reading that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Speaking of books, uh, you and I talked about a bit about Fred Brooks a while ago. And I just oh, referenced yeah. him the other day. I, I used the whole, I can't make a baby in, in one month with nine women line. Oh, yeah. Which is so the Fred mythical Brooks. Man month. Yeah, that whole mythical man month concept. Yeah. Uh, do you still buy, are you, are you still with him? Like, he's such a great reference just in mm -hmm. terms of thinking about productivity and and, the, and creativity what you're able to build and when you can build it and what it takes to make good software yeah yeah so so you just uh, you just referenced the mythical man month and that whole idea i think makes makes a lot of sense to me mm -hmm. uh, i was i was recently looking at another one of his essays the one called no silver bullet and um and i i got to think about that one because i kept running into people who would basically just, uh, you know, whenever I would come with some good idea, for example, you know, a constraint that would liberate them, uh, they would basically just wave at me and say, you know, okay, just dismiss me and say, yeah, well, but there's no silver bullet. And, and that, you know, got on my nerves a little bit. So I decided to go back and reread the essay to figure out, okay, what's, what was that essay actually about? Because I'm not sure that it was actually about, you know, just being dismissive of, of new ideas. Yeah. Um, the fact that people are using it to dismiss ideas doesn't make that, it. And that's what bothers me a little yeah, bit. So sure. I went back and, re and reread it. And, you know, as you might expect, it's not really about that. Yep. Um, so... The first thing I, I think we need to to understand uh, upfront is that there certainly were silver bullets because that's that's basically the whole background of this essay. So this essay is from 1986, wow. uh, as far as I remember. It's called No Silver Bullet, hmm. and and what he's saying is basically he says, well, you know, in the last couple of decades, so in the 70s and the 60s. Um, Software development back then experienced orders orders of magnitudes improvements in you know productivity and simplicity and in all, all sorts of other things, and a lot of that improvement was just because the the field was so new at the time that they actually made great advances, and there was also a lot of advances made in hardware that just made things possible that weren't you know possible in the fifties but became possible during the sixties and the seventies. Right, and he said, well, so all of those dramatic advances um, that they'd seen in, in those decades, basically what the essay says is that that's now over. That's not going to happen anymore. Um, so, so he basically says, well, you know, that happened in the past, um, but, you know, I don't believe, I'm paraphrasing here, he says, I don't believe that we're going to see another order of magnitude increase in productivity uh -huh. or simplicity in the future, in the next 10 years. 
So, so that's actually what he's saying. And then, then he's, he's rolling out a fairly um, sophisticated set of arguments to, to sort of argue why he believes that that's true. Uh, and but so the first thing here is, you know, we should very much understand that what he calls a silver bullet, those things existed. He just says they're not there anymore. So so already at that point, you can say, well, you can't really dismiss, you know, every new idea with saying there's no silver bullet because there were. Yeah. It's just the question, are there any left in the gun, if you will? Um, so look, I, what happens if you shoot a silver bullet in the foot, by the way? Uh, <laughs> Uh, if you're a werewolf, I guess you die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that might be a test to see if people are well. Well, well anyways. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, so I, I, um, I just thought that you know that's it's a little bit of a bleak message still. So even though we can sort of say, well, there, yes, there were silver bullets in the past, but now there's not going to be any more. I, I thought, well, can can this really be true? Or thirty five years on. I just can't believe it's true because software development yeah. is so different. Yeah. Mm. So, so he wrote a follow-up essay in in the in 1995. You know, ten years afterwards, uh, where he tried to look back on on what he wrote ten years before and say, uh, oh, and 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 sort of do a retrospective on you know was I right or not? Uh, and he basically believed that he was right because he didn't see any substantial change from 1985 until 1995 hmm. in well there were there were improvements but he, he considered those to be marginal improvements right. and not you know orders of magnitude improvements yeah, yeah. um yeah, but i, I think one of the one of the things that's that are interesting is that just about that time there's actually happening things as he's writing that second essay in 1995 there are very dramatic things happening in software development that you know in my opinion actually makes uh, software development a lot simpler and a lot easier than it was before. And what, one of the things is that you know there was this little little, little thing called World Wide Web that's yeah, that oddly. started you know becoming a thing. Never heard of and it. And you'd say, well, but how is that an order of magnitude improvement to software development? And you know, if you've only done software development in the last 10, 15 years. Um, you probably never, you, you never experienced a, you know, a doing software development without, you know, stack overflow and without being able to search for, uh, you know, wh whenever you get stuck on something, you can just say, well, okay, so. Right. Mm. Yeah. An infinite amount of information available on demand. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, but I remember, you know, writing code 20, 25 years ago. And if you get stuck on something, you were basically just, um, you were in a really difficult yep. spot there That's because. Right. You couldn't really figure out what, what the problem was. You know, I worked a lot with, with different, you know, closed source technologies. So I couldn't even go and look at the source code on, of the thing that I was, you know, interacting with. It, it would basically just, you know, throw some error. And I was just like, huh, you know, error code 4432. And, and you sit there and you say, okay, so what does that mean? You know, and you couldn't even look it up and you don't have a manual because even if you have a manual, the error code might not be there and so right. on. So you'd be stuck on things, on problems for days. And I remember sometimes being stuck on things for, you know, on problems for weeks. Or um, permanently stuck. Yeah. You have to go a different way. I'll, I'll yeah. You basically just have to go to give up and, and, and go back and say, well, that's, you know, we're, we're, we're going to pivot, we're, you know, we're going to do something completely different because that's, we can't figure out how to do this. Can I remind everybody how old I am with the story? 
Go ahead. So in the days of the TRS-80 Model 4, which is the first computer that I had in the house, my father, um, I used to get the magazine 80 Micro. And it was, you know, uh, it was all about programming. And in the back, there would usually be some sort of basic game. And the source code was printed. Mm -hmm. And you, if you wanted to run it, you had to enter in the source code for this thing. And you could do two, three pages. And uh, I could never, ever get one to work, probably because, you know, you're a kid, you don't have attention to detail. But also, maybe they left something Oh, can you imagine? Yes. Like Sometimes spending it was wrong. hours and hours typing in source code from a magazine, thinking I'm going to play this game, and then it just doesn't work. Oh, baby, yeah. we all yeah. became good debuggers by typing other people's code in. You know, like because you, you did have to find your mistakes, yeah, and maybe find their mistakes. It was very challenging, and you know, we're directly related to that. Thinking in terms of what did the internet really do to software development? It distribution. Yes. I mean, you uh, you used to spend ages testing your software because once you started burning CDs, mm-hmm. you're spending a lot of money and you're getting right. ready to ship out the new version. Like if there's a patch, you're going to have to ship new CDs. When the internet came yeah. along and suddenly just download the patch, it totally changed the way, like your need for the extensive levels of testing to try and, and to get it right. And the cost when you were wrong dropped hugely. Yeah. You could just go get the new version. Not a big deal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so that reminds me of, you know, the whole idea of, of something like continuous delivery, for example, is, is completely unconceivable without, you know, a delivery network like the internet for yeah. example in 1995 uh, when he's writing you know the update uh-huh. to no silver bullet he can't think yeah. in terms of continuous delivery it, it doesn't exist no no that makes it makes no sense but it, and if you go and read a book like accelerate for example by nicole forsgren and and just humble and gene kim yeah. um they basically are you know they have a lot of statistics um you know to back them up and they actually they basically can tell from all the the science they've done that you know the the most significant discriminator between you know high performing teams and all other sorts of teams are you know how fast can you actually deliver so right. all the teams that do continuous delivery are basically just yeah you know, basically you know orders of magnitudes more effect effective or more productive mm-hmm. than other teams you know at least in in terms of how they measure it uh, and so i think there's a lot of things to be said for exactly what you said richard that you know he couldn't imagine you know it's it's easy enough for us to say uh, you know 30 years afterwards and say well you know there all of these things happened because you know hindsight is 2020 20. sure. um but um so i'm not you know pointing fingers at brooks or, or anything at all but no. i i think he was wrong at that you know in that particular um conjecture that he had there that he said well there's no that's not going to be any more of those orders of magnitude simplifications of things and 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 it just turned out that there was and this is only just one of them there's we can actually talk about you know other things as well i remember one of the most popular episodes of dotnet rocks we ever did and we recently talked about this too was Mm -hmm. has software development gotten too complex and Mm -hmm. certainly it was within our little sphere of you know, .NET development, but this was at a time when Silverlight was just coming out, and rather than, you know, going 
waiting for months for new releases. Uh, Scott Guthrie would announce new versions on his blog. And so there was no new get yet. And, you know, the, the, we were in version hell and, uh, all these frameworks were coming out for JavaScript and things. And it really felt like people were just drowning in tech without a lot of tooling mm-hmm. to help them sort it out. So, you know, we, we, we did go through that period. I feel like, you know, today being a modern .NET developer, I've never been more productive and I've never been more happy with the, with the tool set that I have. Yeah, it's pretty good these days. And folks, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Hey, it's Carl and Richard here to tell you that all of the NDC conferences this year are going online. You can still attend the workshops and sessions, but from the comfort of your own home. Here's what's coming up. NDC Oslo is June 8th to 12th. So go to ndcoslo.com to register. NDC Minnesota will be September 8th through the 11th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. NDC Sydney is October 12 to 16. Early bird discount for NDC Sydney ends July 12th. So go to ndcsydney.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. This is Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. We're talking to our friend Mark Seaman and talking about the silver bullets. And you know, the funny thing it hits me is like, clearly the CICD using the internet to distribute software, that is a silver bullet. But we don't yeah. think of it that way because no. silver bullets are supposed to be shiny. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you look at them, and they're exciting. And the problem is, when an idea is so good that doing it any other way just seems stunningly stupid, yeah. you ignore it. You just do it that it way. It becomes transparent. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not a motivator. It's like, well, duh, we don't distribute DVDs anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so therein lies the True. problem with the silver bullets, is when it's that, you know, there's always, this, we argue about this, there's no one right way. It's like, listen, when it comes to software distribution... Distributing by the internet is the one right way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so much so that you just wouldn't talk about it because all the right. alternatives are, are ridiculous. I still do my updates via carrier pigeon. Nice. That was my Bernie <laughs> Sanders impersonation. The, uh, uh, the comment we read on a show last week where the guy was shipping off his punch cards to be run on a computer and he would get mm. back a report, right? A cycle time measured in days. Oh, now that's just yeah. fun. But yeah, you know, it is now because it's not. It's not even nostalgic. It's like it's like yeah. dressing up in steampunk, essentially. <laughs> but if you wanted to build software that was valuable, you wouldn't do it that way. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's, yeah. The problem with silver bullets is when it really, truly is a silver bullet. It is the one right way. You just everybody does it. And doesn't and isn't important. It's just normal. Yeah. So, so that turnaround time you, you talked about there, that, that actually reminds me of another thing that I consider a strong candidate for another silver bullet. And that's mm. the whole idea of, of getting fast feedback on what you're doing. Mm. Uh, and you can get that fast feedback in a, in a lot of different ways. But I remember when I started out doing software development um, as a junior developer, if, if you will, 
Um, the way that you know I would test my software is that I would you know basically compile the the, the software and then you know still in Visual Studio just hit F5, you know start debugging and then you start the the application that was typically a, a web application of some sort and you know I would go and I would log in and I would click around and do whatever it is that I was supposed to do and then I had a little breakpoint in the code and you know sooner or later I would actually you know find this the new code that I've written and sort of step through that and see if everything sort of worked and um, if it actually did that I would sort of say well okay that's good we'll commit that to source control not git uh, but something else probably visual source safe uh, and um, and then we'd move on and you know do other things so that whole testing cycle if you will you know doing manual you know ad hoc testing that's basically something that takes you you know just going through you know those motions take you at least 30 seconds uh, on a slow machine or even a, a medium machine i suppose um and that's basically just one test case so you're just testing whatever it is that you're sitting and doing right now and but you might have hundreds of, of test cases that you actually ought to run and you don't do that because right. you can't, you know, do, you know, hundreds of test cases if they each take, you know, 30 seconds to to actually run through. So what often happened is that we would ship a lot of code with a lot of regression bugs and other things uh, like that. And that just slows you down. And these days, you know, obviously, you know, I write a lot of automated tests. And, and that means, you know, if, if you have a good test suite, and even if you write integration tests that are, you know, otherwise known to be a little bit slow compared to unit tests, but even if you write, you know, integration tests, you can run hundreds of your integration tests in, you know, in a minute uh, or, or maybe even faster. And that's, in my opinion, also an order of magnitude speed up because you can actually get a fairly immediate answer, you know, if you want to have, you know, answer the question, did I just break anything? You know, did I introduce a regression in this code base or is everything that's already supposed to be working, is that still working? And you can press a button and, you you know, you run the test suite for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, maybe a couple of minutes if it's a big integration test suite, and then you have your answer. And, you know, and I remember, you know, one of the, some of the first projects that I did, you know, 20 years ago, we would have separate testing phases that would be weeks right where you know before we could burn this software into a cd mm -hmm. we would have to go through those weeks of testing where we did nothing else but just basically testing um, so again you know it's it's i don't know why fred brooks overlooked something like that but it, it's actually you know, this whole automated testing movement was something that started just when he wrote his retrospective in 1995. You know, Kent Beck was sitting and showing test-driven development to Ward Cunningham and Rob C. Martin and Martin Fowler and all of those other people there. And even even if you don't subscribe to test-driven development, just automated testing, you know, written before or after, I don't care. But that's that's a speed up. That's orders of magnitude. Uh, I consider that to be a silver bullet sure. compared to, you know, how things were well, know, just 20 years ago. I mean, I would make the point he updated in 1995, but he did not yeah. update it in 2005 or 2015. No, hmm. Admittedly, no. he's in his 80s now, and I hope yeah, he's yeah. well. He's one of our legends yep, in this right. industry, and, I, and I've referenced him innumerable times over the decades. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, it's almost like after 1995 – there's a whole series of silver bullets. There, there's quite a few, and I and I even I considered to you know some other ones that I 
I'm not really sure whether there is sort of like orders of magnitude improvements, but there there's definitely other things that really made things a lot easier. Um, I just briefly mentioned you know source control uh, before, and and Git is just an enormous productivity booster. Yeah. Um, because there, there's just and you you don't see that coming again. Uh, at first glance, if you hear about Git, you just say, well, that's just another you know virtual control, control system. system. Yeah. How is that? particularly you know different but the fact that you have the version control system on your own hard drive Mm -hmm. just means that there are some you know working you know processes that you can engage in just by yourself that are completely you know that weren't possible before you know i remember with something like you know visual source safe and other you know centralized uh, source control systems i would often experiment a lot with with my code to figure out you know different ways of think you know doing things and that would mean you would have you know you'd have lots of commented out code uh, because you say well i I'm, i may need this later on but but i'm just going to comment it out now because <laughs> i want to see how this other alternative thing works and i never do that anymore because if i want to do an alternative i'm just going to stash my changes yep. or make a new branch and git and i'm yeah. and, and i'm just going to st- delete the stuff that i want to try to see you know what would that be without it? And I'm just going to experiment because I know that, you know, Git on my own hard drive has my back. Yep. Right. And so I'm not sure that's an order of magnitude. Well, I do think improvement, but it's definitely significant. Distributed source control with merge resolution mm-hmm. is another one of those sets of guardrails that gets us into this integrate early and often mindset that the longer, longer time you're on a branch, the more pain you're going to have. That's right, yeah. Absolutely. Like, it yeah. is that more pit of success mindset of yeah. write your code and check it in. And if we've done our job well with automated testing, we're feeding back to you rapidly mm-hmm. that you've got a problem with your check-in. And and because yeah. I'm while I'm letting you work on your own and I'm not making you wait and I'm not blocking you, I'm mm-hmm. also punishing you for being away too long. Right. To get back to the glar- the bigger hole, integrate early and often, you'll have more success. Like, I yeah. do think that's a significant improvement. Or at least, you know, get the latest changes every day or a half day or whatever. Yeah. So that you're, that you know, you're integrating well. Working on the current bits. But that points to another thing that, that I think is worth being aware of. And that is uh, when Brooks originally wrote about this there being no silver bullet he says well there's not going to be another change in technology or process um that will you know have an you know constitute an, an order of magnitude improvement but i think richard what you just talked about here is just as much a change in how you approach things so that's a process change mm-hmm. this you know um continuous integration always running on trunk you know merging several times a day and so on it's it's not something the technology itself enforces you to do but if you do it things are just going to be so much easier for you you know brooks should really should have taken yuri geller's correspondence esp uh future (laughs) prediction course Uh, because if he had done that then uh, he wouldn't have made such foolish remarks (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I don't think it's foolish at all. I thought, you know, yeah, I thought yeah. the essay was actually quite worthwhile. Uh, and quite the sarcastic. Only, you know, the reason that we're even talking about hi- hi- this now is because it's it was so influential in the way that people saw things. Sure. Uh, and, and it is a very well argued, and I think there's a lot of good points in it, but, you know, and I still don't want to fault him for not being able to predict the future because... Yeah. I can't but do that. Also, either. I appreciate your original sentiment of like what using that as a defense to not try new things. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about this whole conversation is we are taking for granted these new practices that have made dramatic improvements in the way we build mm-hmm. software. But there's also plenty of folks out there that still aren't using them and don't appreciate yeah. that these are exponential improvements in your software. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is, I, it made me think about one of William Gibson's, you know, things where he says, well, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Yes. Um, and, I, but the good news here is that there's a lot of those things that you can do where it, you can just start doing those things. You know, I still yeah. need people who, well, they, they're probably shifted, you know, no one really does, you know, centralized version control anymore people do use git but they still i meet lots of organizations that use git in the way that they you know used to use source you know centralized version control Mm -hmm. system yeah and and so it doesn't cost any money you know git is even free uh it's just that you know you have to figure out how to make the change in how how the process works um, and I'm not saying that it's easy, you know, if you're entrenched in a, an old way of doing things, it's, you know, change is always difficult, right. but it's possible. It's there. I, you know, the, another aspect of, of, uh, exponential change, I think is the mm-hmm. open source movement as a whole, that there's far less competition for a given library, that it's mm-hmm. easy. It's not just that you, you are always able to buy third party libraries, but there were several of them. They competed today. You can choose a third party library that is actually an open source project and contribute to it Mm. yeah and so that the best thinking around a given problem is available to everyone and is contributed to by everyone Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i agree that that's an improvement um you know if we really want to stay within the spirit of of fred brooks we we should always look for those orders of magnitude improvements Mm -hmm. and i'm i'm not i'm not entirely you know convinced that that's the case here uh because i think a lot of the um a lot of what looks like orders of magnitudes improvements with open source software development in general is just because there's so much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, if you look at, 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 you know, graphs over, you know, how many software developers are there actually in the world? You know, if you, if you compare to, you know, back from, you know, Fred Brooks's timeline, like 80, 1985 to 1995, and then look at, Today, I don't have the numbers in my head, but it's it's there are orders of magnitudes more software developers, sure. uh, you know, now than than there was back then, and uh, you know, a substantial percentage of those people produce open source software, and that just means that there's a lot of open source software out there, but that might not actually be a result of a productivity gain. That's just the result of you know volume really more than modern productivity. Or one could argue that anyway. Um, but, um, but, but Richard, the, the point you're making about being able to go and contribute back, if, if that's something you actually want to do, that again, talks about the quick turnaround of things. Uh, so again, coupled with the delivery mechanism of the world wide web that, you know, might still be, you know, be part of the, um, of the order of magnitude gain that we, that we talked about before. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking in terms of the fact that you, 
consistently see the big players collaborating over libraries rather than competing. Like the dominant, mm. the dominance of Kubernetes has nothing mm-hmm. to do with just how great the software is, although it is pretty good. But the fact that all of the major players started contributing to it and all supported it meant it's easy for us on the outside of uh, of that. You know, I probably never contribute to Kubernetes, but I certainly am taking advantage of it, knowing mm-hmm. there's a tremendous number of great minds working on that. Yeah, yeah. But, but And going back to the um, one of you talked about the comment that you'd had in a previous show mm-hmm. um, where someone talked about the increasing complexity of, of you know, just software de- development right. in general. Right, sure. um, so, so some of the pushback I've been getting, you know, about the, um, I, I wrote a little essay about this myself. And some of the, you know, the pushback people have given me is that they say, well, but, you know, the problems that we're trying to solve nowadays is just much more complicated than they were back then. Because, um, you know, basically, if you look back to 1985, you know, Distributed software, you know, was not really a thing that a mainstream developer would be looking at. You right. know, so yes, you did have networks in 1985, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't, you know, part of, you know, your your mainstream, your normal software developers um, thing that they was that that was something that they needed to think about. Maybe they had a client server model, but they would then probably. I'm just trying to remember what it was like in 1995. I, I wasn't writing code in 1985. Um, but just, you know, thinking about in 1995, yes, we did have networks, um, but there was typically some library where you could just call a method and, on some object and then you would make a query against the database yeah. and that would sort of shield you away from thinking about, you know, what is this distributed software right. actually? Um, so so nowadays we're trying to figure out how to do, you know, vastly distributed software architectures with lots of different machines, you know, with, with farms and horizontal scaling and some sometimes also vertical scaling and lots of different nodes and so on. As you said, Kubernetes. And that's just a completely different game. Well, and said side effect of the cloud. I also think the diversity of client is a big issue. You talk uh-huh, about in yeah. 85 and 95, and really even in 2005, mm-hmm. for the most part, when you were writing code on a computer, that yeah. the person that was going to consume your application was using the same kind of computer. Yep. Yeah. And that is just not true anymore. Yeah. yeah. And that's a really hard problem. Like if I think about the hard problem of the past 10 plus years, it's the majority of the consumers of your application are using a completely different compute computational device for your application than the yeah. one you wrote the code. And back on. then it was mostly mm-hmm. desktops at that. Everything was desktops. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was, and there was so little phone apps, you know, even in aught five. Yep. But today we expect the majority of the consumers of your applications are running them on phones and tablets. Yeah. And they're multi-threaded. Yes. Which is another thing that wasn't really a big thing in 1985, sure. you know, multi, multi-threading and parallel, you know, execution. Um, so, so we could argue that, that maybe Brooks was right in the sense that the types of problems he knew about and dealt with, um, maybe it was true that there wasn't a lot of more to be gained, you know, you could have some, some you know, small gains, but not orders of magnitude gains. But 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 that also cleared up, you know, the the road to now that they sort of solved the problems that they had back then. That you know, new things became possible. Yeah. I think it's part of it, and I think you know, I have a session called the coming disruptions in development, which by the way mm-hmm. doesn't mention a pandemic at all <laughs> yet. 
Uh, and one of the things I talk about is we're on the cusp of another huge breach in client formats. You know, mm -hmm. for a long time, it was just keyboard, mouse, and screen. And mm -hmm. then we shrunk the screen down and we added touch. Uh, and yeah. But now we're headed towards, hey, you know, now the screen is strapped to your face or there is no screen. It's just a voice interface. Like yeah. we are exploring very new user interface experiences. And for yeah. us as developers, that's going to be a significant challenge. Yep. But also huge, you know, that's what the next gold rush looks like is when the customer wants to consume this in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. The those who figure out how to build the software that helps them do that are going to great, have great opportunities in front of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Indeed. yeah, that's something that really that really I find quite fascinating. I haven't really got into you know programming against you know voice based UI. So it's not a yeah, it's a UI. It's not a GUI. It's a UI. Um, but I just think it, it's you know, I find it so fascinating that the normal way we're used to thinking about things is is like a 2D grid. Yeah. And even if you think about VR, you can say, well, that's just sort of an extension of 2D into 3D. Um, but with voice, you don't have any dimensions, but you have time as a dimension because thing, you know, it says, you know, it takes time to say a thing and mm -hmm. it takes time to listen to the response. And you sort of have to think about how, how to design an interface well, that is time based more than, you know, space based. Well, and all the efficiency in voice is based on context, right? Mm -hmm. That given yeah. what I previously said, what I say yes. next has to be influenced by that. Yeah. That's a very different user experience. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and, it's, and, and the iteration of that, the cycle time for building a better voice interface or for building a better AR interface, like these, we, the struggle I think we've had in the past few years as we've gone into mobile and tablet has been the cycle time went down when mm -hmm. we've always been about making the cycle time shorter and shorter and shorter. And so we're, that's really hard. Uh, and we're going to continue to have problems in that area because we want that cycle time to be super short. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's how we measure our productivity, and it's and it is the distinction uh, of the mo of modern development mm -hmm. time. It's mm -hmm. just how rapid that got. But it's interesting that at ninety five, that last version of that no silver bullet, is at the point of of arguably greatest homogeneity, where the PC has won, yeah. and it and the machine is keyboard, mouse, and screen, and the servers are homogeneous as well. And they're always in on premise. There's the idea of distributed networks outside the building are, are crazy at that point because bandwidth's not good enough, but the network yeah. is fast enough. Like that was the point of most uniformity. And after that, as the internet came into play, the, the heterogeneity just exploded. It all became mm. different. Yes, true. And we're not done. There's more. <laughs> like, there's more coming. <laughs> no. I was just thinking, you, you just reminded me that, um, you know, web development, especially just HTML, JavaScript, and whatever, has uh, web developers have enjoyed the sort of hot reload idea, you know, for a long time where they're just working sure. on something, they save the file, and then the browser that they're testing it in just updates. And Blazor, the new uh, web UI framework from Microsoft, isn't quite there yet with that. Mm -hmm. There's just a little bit more complexity, but that is at the top of the list you know, for, for features that people are requesting because of that cycle, you know, because I have to stop my app, change something, run it again, it again. everything loads yeah. up again. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's annoying at, at best. Yeah. And once you've had a short cycle time, you don't want to go back. 
No. You know, and that's, it's interesting as we shift platforms, we lose functionality from the previous platform and we have to win it back, at least for developers. We get new capabilities, but at the expense of others. And then you try and earn back those old capabilities that were so valuable for your cycle time. Right. True that. Mark, what <laughs> else have you been thinking about these days? You're uh, one of my favorite thinkers. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Uh, I don't know. I'm, you know, I, I spend most of my time, you know, thinking about functional programming these days, actually, and sort of how, how to translate some of those things back into, you know, object oriented worlds where people still feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, you, if I, if you'd ask me to predict something that might actually be a, a you know force multiplier in in the years going ahead is is I would bet on on functional programming and I would probably be wrong about it because you know I don't imagine that I'm a, a better predictor of the future than, than Fred Brooks uh, were um, but that's just what I think is interesting this this whole this whole idea about um, using uh, let me let me put this another way one of the one of the things that that most mainstream programming languages sort of suffer from is that there there are abstractions upon abstractions upon abstractions on how a cpu works mm. uh so you know if you if you think about this a cpu the first the first layer of you know abstraction you add on top of that is instead of writing your software as machine code uh, you say well that's too difficult so you you invent something called assembly language instead where you just put mnemonics on all the machine instructions right. and then you sort of figure out that that doesn't really port very well across different you know cpu architectures and then you invent a language you call c and then you think that's still not sophisticated enough and then you build on top of that and, and create c plus plus and then you get java and c sharp and so on um but but these languages are basically built from from the bottom you know towards something that is more and more abstract um, but they still drag a lot of you know ways of of modeling software that are basically based in the cpu and i'm not sure i'm not particularly convinced that the way the cpu works is is easy for you know a human brain to actually get its head around because you know there's so much stuff actually well, happening. there have been languages that were designed um, from the top down small talk comes to mind right um, I'm, I don't know enough about small talk, but, um, but what we see with some functional programming languages, and I, I believe Lisp was probably the first one, um, but, you know, one of my favorite languages is, is Haskell. Um, they basically just, you know, start with the idea of, you know, let's look at, you know, what we actually believe that computation is. Uh, and the funny thing about computation is that you probably know this already, but, you know, in, in the 1930s, mathematicians were trying to figure out, you know, what is this thing computation? And this is where, you know, Turing made his, you know, great advances in, in computer science. But there was also this American mathematician called Alonzo Church, who came up with this thing called the Lambda Calculus. And the lambda calculus is basically a mathematical model for describing what is computation. The funny thing is that it looks a lot like a programming language. Um, so you could basically just, you know, you could sort of see the, if you look at the lambda calculus, you can sort of see the contours of a real programming language. Uh, so it, it you, you know, you could start with that and that's, you know, just a completely, you know, decoupled abstraction that's just basically based on, based on 
the notion of you know compute computation and has nothing to do with how a CPU works. And then you can sort of say, well, okay, let's let's make it a little bit more concrete. Um, you know, Lambda calculus is not really a programming language, but let's make some programming languages that are sort of based on those ideas. And they may still be you know too you know too um, sophisticated so that you have to have a PhD in mathematics in order to understand how they they work. So you dumb it down a little bit more, and you know if you do that a couple of times, you may reach something like Lisp or Haskell or something like that which is pretty still pretty high level um but but they're sort of designed top down instead of you know being designed you know from the bottom up um, and i just find that very fascinating because that means that there's a lot of the implementation details in how cpu actually works and so on that you don't really have to to uh, to think about so, mm -hmm. so you know starting at that high level of abstraction just means that there's a lot of you know accidental complexity that you don't really have to to take care yeah. of there's still a lot of it going on it's not perfect or anything but um i think that's really interesting yeah it's awesome stuff and it, again it, it seems like a set of constraints designed to lead you to a pit of success Oh, I think so very much, you know, so, so, you know, with Haskell, we have this um, distinction between things that that can have side effects and things that can't have side effects and so on. So, you know, even you know, just printing uh, to the screen or, you know, having a speaker say something, you know, in, in a voice U, UI, that would be a side effect. Uh, and, and. Haskell makes those distinction that you can't have functions um, that are pure, you know, mathematical functions. They can't have side effects. So you sort of need to make that distinction. Um, and if you fail to make that distinction, your program is not going to compile. So that's that's a pretty that's that feels like a very difficult constraint to set up that, that most of the time you will you know, when you learn Haskell you will find that your program is not going to compile and people will say well that's really you know that's not a friendly language uh, and it's difficult to learn but that constraint is so useful because you just know that you know the the flip side is that when you manage to write most of your code in you know as pure functions mm -hmm. There's there's nothing, there's no surprises hidden in a pure function. Right. Um, so you can just look at a function and you can say, oh, if this is the input, that's going to be the output. And I know that there's not going to, no non-deterministic, you know, code is going to execute when I run this function. Right. And that, that means I could basically just stop worrying about it. That's and an that's, issue. that's a fantastic liberation. Well, Mark, uh, I, I can't wait to get back to Denmark and uh, maybe we'll catch up and <laughs> hang out. Take me, take us to, yeah, uh, take us to some of those fine restaurants. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, if they if they survive all the lockdowns, yeah, yeah they're really suffering at the moment. Yeah, would mind a little trip to, to Noma. Yep. All right, man. Yeah, let's see if that one makes it. They they, they probably make it, but I I, I guess. Yeah, I hope so. All right, Mark. Thanks yeah, again. Thanks very much. It's always a pleasure to talk yeah. to you. Thanks for having me. All right, and we'll see you next time on Dot Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, 
and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.